0: And welcome to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, April
1: it's 7th. 7th? Yes. Oh, gosh,
0: I forgot to change the date. That's all right. Uh, I am your ghostly host, Hertzy Hertz, in studio with the vampress Maddie Love. And via s- the spirit phone Skype, God. we have Dr. Jeb Card. I told you I was going to do puns. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not even puns. This is just me being silly. Dr. Jeb Card is an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Anthropology at Miami University. He's the editor of the Archaeology of Hybrid... Material Culture, and the co-editor of Lost City, Found Pyramid, Understanding Alternative Archaeologies and Pseudo-Scientific Practices. He has been co-host for the popular podcast, Archaeological Fantasies, and a repeat guest on the podcast, Monster Talk. Jeb is joining us here today to discuss his latest book, Spooky Archaeology. <laughs>
1: Not that kind of spooky.
0: Not that kind of spooky? Well, oh, maybe. A little. Yeah, a little, a little yeah. OK, I, I was going to say I'm feeling cheated here since I made all those great, you know, <laughs> spooky no, things. There's 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 monsters and, and,
2: and vampires and, and, and
0: Cthulhu in and it. It's it's
2: it's it's it's, it's appropriate. Yeah.
0: All right. Ah, Cthulhu. All right. Well, this is an open conversation, and we welcome and encourage listener interactions with your phone calls to 952-946-6205, your emails to radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at, at Atheist Talk, or check out our Facebook page, Atheist Talk. The phone number is only available when we are live, but you can always email or tweet whether we're live or you're listening to the podcast. Maddie, Dr. Jeb, good morning and welcome to Atheist Talk.
1: <laughs> good morning. <laughs> Well, good morning, hertz Deb, uh, I wanted to start um, by saying thank you so much for this book. I, I love history. Uh, I love learning about how people, like, long ago interacted with their world and, like, how similar their day-to-day life was to mine and also how different. So, mm-hmm. you know, just a, just a general thank you, really. There's not really a question in that, just— Okay, I'll <laughs> I was take it. Say, I'll, I'll, I'll take praise. Thank you.
0: Considering your job, I would really love to see the
1: similarities with ancient cultures. <laughs> and, and clinical microbiology? Yes. You know, we both studied minutiae.
2: Well, yeah. True. you know, I mean, uh, one, one of the things I love telling my students is, is things are not as, as that different from today as you might expect. One of the sites I talked to them about is uh, some work from uh, Peru, from Daniel Curran, who found y'all do you know what
1: trepanation is you ever heard of that is that where they make holes in your skull
2: yes yes and of course we have found many examples going over 2,000 years ago of of you, you could call it brain surgery but really skull surgery to release pressure to do all sorts of things well there was one site that uh that dr daniel Curran worked on where it was a skull with no signs of healing on there were several but on this particular skull and there were numerous holes like like about 20. On this of of various sizes growing and growing like, you know, like a a ratchet set where they like they get bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, like the individual um, sockets uh, for a wrench. Uh, I'm I'm probably mixing tool metaphors that I don't really know about. (laughs) But um, this was practice. It was medical school. They literally found evidence of someone practicing on a skull at, in essence, a 2,000-year-old South American medical school. So, yeah, not quite microbiology, but um
1: but with not, risks not of inf- far, with risks of infection, know. microbiology was definitely involved. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trepidation about trepanation. Um, yeah. Um so I guess a, a good place to start is with in conversations, is usually with definitions so we can all make sure we're talking about the same things. Like sure. archaeology isn't like some weird unknown world word to most people, but you're a professional. Can you define what archaeology is for us?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's both known and unknown. So if you were to go to uh, – I mean, we could probably look up a dictionary, but you go to a dictionary or a, uh, an encyclopedia entry or if you asked someone who either is in archaeology or who you know is knows enough about how it's done by professionals, they would say something like uh, archaeology is the study of the material culture Of Past people in order to understand their lives with material culture being the things that we make and modify One could gloss that a little more easily and say it's going through dead people's trash to spy on them (laughs) Which is somewhat easier than going through live people's trash to spy on them (laughs) uh, depending on your jurisdiction now That's legitimate archaeology in terms of a definition like oh, I look at the leftover remains of that we leave on the landscape the physical clues everything from Broken bits of pottery and t- stone tools and fragments to the trade of metals to, uh, oh, how they built this architecture and big pyramids and ritual practices like burials and so on. And it can also expand and include things like um, one could argue that most people, when they think archaeology, they would include epigraphy, which is reading you know ancient hieroglyphs on a wall or an object. Um, while I, I teach in an archaeology uh, course, for example, I will bring up archaeogenetics, which, you know, getting back to microbiology, is entirely about either mitochondrial or nuclear DNA and what that can tell us about where people are, where they were coming from. You know, there's archaeochemistry. So there's a lot, there's tons of ways. It's not just trash, but material residue that tells us about past societies and peoples. And some even argue studying material culture today falls into archaeology, you know, if you're trying to understand people through the things they make. Now, the reason I say people both know it and don't know it, that's a legitimate take on archaeology. The reality is, though, when most people sort of think of archaeology in a popular sense, they may think of that, but it often involves things that are larger. I mean, the, the title of the book is Spooky Archaeology Myth and the Science of the Past. They often think about things that are bigger or less mundane than ourselves. And I don't mean bigger, necessarily literally larger, although sometimes that's the case. Um, but things that are are more than human. And I think that's actually a place where a lot of professionals fall down when talking to uh, a larger audience. Is they're like, wow, well, this thing is really important. And it's, you know, here, but that is not necessarily how people see it there's you know if you, if you look at you know name a movie or a game or a television show that talks about archaeology tell me the chances it doesn't either involve murder or the supernatural or both
1: yeah they, you know all the ones and, and i get reasons think of too. For that
2: that's not just bad media there's reasons for that
1: yeah so um that's just so when you're talking about like the difference between the major and the mundane and so are you saying like that When you're studying, or when archaeologists are studying things, things that are that I would maybe, as an outsider, as a layperson, would consider mundane, you guys are like looking at, going, no, but this explains a lot. Don't you understand? Yes.
2: Yeah. So you know, we could look at, you know, so for example, uh, I'll 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 give you an example, and then I'll talk about uh, maybe I think why there's a disjunct for a lot of folks. Um, You know, my my dissertation research was not on this topic, as my advisor was like, no, you're not doing that. Um, no, it wasn't just that. But uh, I, I went and worked on the first Spanish settlement in El Salvador. You know, where the majority of people were not Spaniards. You know, this is during the Spanish conquest of Central America. This was a couple of years after the the Spanish conquest of what's known as the Aztec Empire, the Triple Alliance. Uh, and so this is in Central America, and I studied forty-five thousand little bits of pottery, but from that. Uh, we were able to determine not just oh, this is where people were doing their cooking, this is where they were doing their their you know this is where tax um, tribute was being stored, and oh, and these people may have come from somewhere else, but even things like, oh look the the temper the stuff in this pottery here is slightly different than over here or the treatment of the surface, and that changes through the stratigraphic column from the bottom of the hole to the top of the hole, and it 's probably over two generations because I also compared this to pottery in Spain and Italy in form, which gave us a tighter chronology. And the fact that it changes is probably due to the fact that it's a second generation of potters and their culture is changing in this colonial context because they're all, you know, all of a sudden I'm I'm answering social questions, which are important, out out of little bits of broken plates that people threw away. You know, that's mundane. But, of course, we can tease all kinds of stuff out of that you know and that's just that's not even using chemical analysis that's not you know looking at genetics you know, we can tease tons and tons of information out of little bits of clues you know the, the csi comparison is not inapt uh the detective comparison is not inapt but again if you ask people about archaeology is that what they talk about like oh well yes i read this thing about these little broken bits of pottery and it was fascinating about social life um no they they either you know either it's like oh this king's tomb full of gold or the oldest shipwreck or – or, and then, of course, things like, oh, uh, uh, an ancient civilization that's under the water or aliens or any of those kinds of things. And I think one of the main reasons for this is if you look around the world, people generally divide time into two basic kinds of time. One kind of time is human time and it's usually the last couple hundred years uh, where people are like us. You know, oh – you know, my great, great grandfather or their neighbor made that building downtown. And we, you know, we can think about their motivations. Once you get beyond that, you have mythic time. You have this just kind of like, Oh, it's ancient. And that's where the mythic stuff comes in. And mythic doesn't mean untrue. Mythic means it explains how the world is in big, broad brush strokes. It has a resonance with larger values of our culture. And once you get into that, it's generally bigger than us. And even, you know, the, the, you know, secular folks, you know, do this very much. Do people really just think about the Big Bang in terms of the physics? No, they think about it in terms of beginnings. You know, are dinosaurs just another kind of animal, or plesiosaurs just you know another kind? Of, no, they're sea monsters, or they are metaphors for success or failure, or they're cool dragons, or you know, we we do this. the The ice age is just not one period of climate change. It's like, oh, well, this is this is different and formational and, we, we do the same thing. Once it gets beyond our experience, we start to read it in bigger ways that we would not read what happened you know, down the street half a generation ago. And I think because the job of archaeology, real professional archaeology, is to, in essence, map all of time as human time, like to make it, oh, we learned what these people like were like and they're like us, but a little different.
1: All right, Um, we're going to actually. That's our job. We forget that. (laughs) Hey, Jeb, we're going to have to cut you off for just a moment. We're going to run into a commercial break here.
0: Oh, yes, but please stay with us through the break. We'll return to Atheist Talk with Maddie and Dr. Jeb Card, regarding their ghastly tales of spooky archaeology. Welcome back to AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk, and I'm your host, Hurtsey Hertz in studio. With me is Maddie Love, and via Skype is the author of Spooky Archaeology – Dr. Jeb Card. Atheist Talk is produced with the funding from Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina, Minnesota. Please consider visiting our sponsors, and if you do, let them know that you appreciate their support of Atheist Talk. If you'd like to advertise on this program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. As for the here and now, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation with Maddie, Dr. Jeb, and I this morning, you can call us at 952 952- Nine four six six two zero five. Email us at radio at mnatheist.org, dot org or tweet us at at atheist talk, or you can check out the Facebook page where there is a comment thread going on right now that you can look into. So, Maddie, Dr. Jeb Card, welcome back.
1: Oh thanks, Hersey. Um, you know, when we went into the break, I I, I cut you off, Jeb. Was there anything you wanted That's to finish right. with that train of thought? No,
2: I was I was about where I was trying to get to. Just okay. the fact that. Uh, that there's a reason why, you know. On the one hand, archaeologists like, well, we're trying to say these things. It's not just aliens. People are like, well, but, but this thing, you know, maybe why not this? And I'm like, well, we're not going to talk about that. There's there's a reason why people want to talk about aliens or Atlantis or curses or all of that uh, or other things. And and this often doesn't go well when you actually talk to real archaeologists about it
1: yeah and you know you were talking about things like being mundane about you know how pottery shards can change over time but i th- I think one of the things that fascinates me about that is it helps it helps humanize those people for me, you know when I think of say the Mayan culture, it's mm-hmm. not just like one thing that never changed it it was static it changed- just like our culture changes, maybe not with the same rapidity, but it right. still wasn't stagnant like maybe people think about. Yeah, it. no,
2: exactly. And that's, you know, and 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 that is again that expansion of, of of human time. You know, it's like, oh, these are people like us. They have goods, they have bads, they do cool things sometimes, they don't do cool things, just like we we do. And by looking at them, we learn about ourselves. But that is around the world, and including for example, even, you know, the Maya, they didn't necessarily see it that way. They had their own kind of of uh, ideas about the past. For example, if you go back to the especially to the early classic. You see it later. The early classic is the sort of the first half of the first millennium CE. Um, you find numerous depictions of a, uh, a great big shark fighting two hero twins. Now, hero twins are this big kind of – it's found in a lot of American societies, a lot of indigenous American societies. You know, these two heroes that fight various monsters and kind of set the world the way it is. They are part of origin stories. What get You know, the word myth gets put on there, although as I was saying before – doesn't mean it's true or not true it's just it has excuse me that that uh resonance and one of the things they're fighting is a giant frigging shark well the thing about that is the front tooth of this shark is portrayed as being very large and dark and shiny it's actually basically depicted as being the same as jade which was this really important material dark and shiny And jade, like like marble, like the way we think of marble as of the Romans or the Greeks or whatever, as also being ancient. Now, if I have a big, you know, if I'm saying a really big shark and its teeth are and it's ancient, its and its teeth are dark and shiny. Does this ring a bell? Does this does this remind you of anything? Hmm. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Megalodon. Oh, Oh, yeah. Actually, we, find, we find Megalodon teeth in ritual caches as well, as uh, next to uh, modern shark teeth in Mesoamerica, in the Maya region, in the Olmec region. They were finding these friggin' teeth and going, well, there must have been a big, huge shark. And they have a story about the Hero Twins getting rid of it and putting the world to rights. Wow.
1: Well, I mean not that yeah. Megalodon has gone extinct or anything. It's still around. Um, that was yeah, sarcasm. No that. Yeah. I was <laughs> no, going to say –
0: I have a slight healthy fear of, of shark. I mean, very slight in the healthy part, but fear of Megalodon shark attacks. <laughs> I
2: mean, honestly, I'm down with the Megalodon because, you know, if, if you're going to get, you know, bitten by a shark, it's like, well, that's just going to happen. Like, just, you're done. You know, it's like, oh, it's going to take my leg off, you know, if you're attacked by some other kind of thing, which, of course, shark attacks are incredibly rare. We kill far, far, far more sharks, um, which we shouldn't. But, you know, if you if this were to happen, it's like, oh, my God, my, my femoral artery. It's like versus Oh, I'm just I'm inside stuck of a shark between its teeth. Like this is <laughs> this is just done now. So I don't know. I kind of I find megalodon mildly reassuring as shark attacks might go. Besides, I mean you're going to get killed
1: by something. Get killed by megalodon. A kind of awesome way to go. <laughs> so the full title of your book, um, Spooky Archaeology, says the myth and science of the past. What what exactly does that mean?
2: All right. So this the, one of the things that I found, uh, and I, and I guess it's sort of what I was talking about with, before the break that a lot of professional archaeologists have been so well-trained and they're so versed in doing that that humanization of the past that you're talking about, they forget that this is not the primary way that people see things. I mean, I'll just say something. You know, Ancient Aliens, the the TV show Ancient Aliens, the concept, um, not very good. It's it's not very smart. Um, but that's frankly more representative of how, how many people, again, cross-culturally, see the past as as a place of, of bigness, of myth. So it's like, you know, on the one hand, you have a science of the past. But on the other hand, that is not how often people see it. And bringing that to the attention of archaeologists more than, you know, there's a lot of places in the book where I'm talking to a larger audience, but then there, I will slip into we. Like, look, we need to understand this. You know, it's, it's written for both audiences. Like, it's got mummy's curses. It's got archaeologists as spies. It's got the origins of Cthulhu, all these sorts of things. But it's also like, here's why people, you know, especially the last chapter of it, here's why people are not listening to you. And the reason why is that you're not even really understanding how people engage with the past, how making what are co- what I call extra humans sort of like people that are not people is inherent to how people engage with material culture of the past. Our version is ancient aliens. We're like, well, did we build this? No. Well, those people didn't build it because this is where the colonialism and the racism comes in. Um. Well, they're not, you know, good civilized white people in South America. They didn't build it. We didn't build it. Aliens. Well, that's not an unusual idea. In medieval Europe, when ancient stone tools were found, they were considered to be the products of elves. Because, well, we didn't build this and the Romans didn't build this. We didn't make this. But somebody made it, clearly. And so it's elves that shot things from the woods at you. Uh, In the Middle East, it was jinn and is jinn, and, and, and is aliens today, but is jinn in the Middle East, uh, genies, like that built this ancient thing. Oh, the pharaoh totally built the pyramids, is you, you, a folk concept you see in some places. He controlled many jinn to do it. In the Maya region, you had Aluxo, basically very similar to the, sort of the, the elves of Europe. So this, the way that archaeologists approach the past is awesome, and it is
1: a minority
2: perspective.
1: So, we've only got like a minute left, but I wanted mm-hmm. to move on like you mentioned in the opening chapter of the book that you don't the book isn't a debunking book, and we don't have much time for the break, but can you explain sure. what you meant by that well, so I mean there's some really there's there we have done some solid work and go
2: you know people are like, oh well, these relics are actually Roman, or this stone structure in New England is really Celtic It's like well, like no that's That's not what – no, that's not. We have plenty of reasons why this is a colonial thing or this is an indigenous thing or this is a hoax. And that work absolutely needs to be done. And I've been involved in that kind of work. But I think in order to understand why those kinds of claims get made, we need to look at the bigger picture. We need to look at sort of where these ideas come from and why they are so popular. And that's more what I'm interested in doing here.
1: Fantastic. Um, So when we get back, I wanted to to talk about a little bit about, have you explained how difficult it is for you to watch maybe some popular science channels in the History Channel. But uh, I would like to talk about pop culture. We can do that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. We'll return right after the break with Maddie Love and Dr. Jeb, author of Spooky Archaeology. Please stay with us. I'm Hertsy Hertz, and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNFAM 950. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF. I'm your host, Hertsy Hertz, and we're having what I would classify as a fascinating conversation with Maddie Love and Dr. Jeb Card. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation with Maddie, Dr. Jeb, and I this morning, you can call us at 952-946-6205. Email us at radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at, at atheist talk, or check out the Facebook page where also the Minnesota Atheist Group also has a link and a comments section. But before we continue the conversation, a little bit more housekeeping to attend to. I want to note our group of dedicated volunteers like Maddie and the generous donations of you, our listeners. You help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast form. I'd also like to note our donors of the week, which is the people who were at the Flying Spaghetti Monster last week, which also was me, which was so much fun.
1: You just thank yourself.
0: Well, I mean...
1: (laughs) I'm just using. Go on. I, 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 I tossed a few bucks in,
0: but also it's just the fact that it's, it's always great to, for the Flying Spaghetti Monster because you know the show does take a certain amount of money to keep on the air, and it's always great when I hear that it's like yes we got another week. Awesome. Um, if you're able to help with the donation, please consider doing so at our Radio Fund page or at our Patreon, where you can get extended interviews at www.patreon.com slash atheist talk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization, and we very seriously could not do this show without you, and we deeply appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Michael Davis and is used with permission. Please note, all opinions are of the guest and host only and do not necessarily reflect those of the Minnesota Atheist Organization. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Maddie and Dr. Jeb Card.
1: So going into the in the break, um, well, we were chatting about uh, quite a bit. <laughs> but then uh, off air, we were also talking about uh, Cthulhu. And I feel like the two things that we were talking about kind of go together because Oops. Pop,
0: I actually have a question from online.
1: Oh wow! Okay. Yes, yes.
0: Great. Uh, Joe is asking, "What is Doctor Card's favorite movie that is archaeology themed?" Oh,
2: that's a that's a really good question, and it also kind of ties into what you were just leading into because it's not a straight up Lovecraft adaptation, but it's definitely in in there. Uh, Quatermass and the Pit. Um, there's two versions. It was a big, massive BBC thing in the 1950s, like a miniseries, like a couple of nights thing. And then they made a hammer version and I want to say like 1966 or so it's actually coming out on Blu-ray, which it's not almost, it's impossible to get for region one. Um, it was made by hammer in 1966 and it's very good, uh, about an archeological dig, which turns out is inspired by an actual archeological dig in London in the 1950s in the city of London where they accidentally found during tube excavations, uh, a secret Roman temple in the center of London to to the the secret of God Mithras So this inspires this movie where they're digging they're digging a, um, a Tube extension and they find something in a place called Hobbs Lane and to get into all of it and spoil it I don't I just want to put it out there. It involves devils it involves aliens it involves the nature of humanity and it involves archaeology, and it's a, it's a classic. I highly recommend it. I, I guarantee be... your listeners have probably seen something that's been at least somewhat influenced by it. Quatermass oh. in the Pit, also known as Five Million Years to Earth, which was the American release title.
0: I am so looking this up later.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's coming out, I think, in May on Blu-ray for Region 1, so you could get it.
1: Yes. Well, and to be honest, like I had never – before picking up this book, because I apparently completely – had a brain fart on the Monster Talk episode you guys did. I didn't equate Cthulhu with actual archaeology.
0: Neither did I, technically, because I knew that that yeah. H.P. Lovecraft wasn't influenced by Poe, but that was about.
1: And I listened it. to an entire episode on Monster Talk. <laughs> See, well, I at least so don't, don't early, have.
0: I at he, least have the excuse where I didn't have that.
1: <laughs> his early work is, is Poe
2: influence, and and several other authors. There's quite a few. And I mean, his very first story is literally about like well, his first one he publishes, uh, Dagon, is about. Um, island, kind of a prototype of the later Cthulhu story called Cthulhu, where a traveler is on um, an island that has risen and there are inhuman carvings on giant sky-flung monoliths and and all sorts of things. Uh, But a lot of his early stories are not that... They have elements of archaeology. They have elements of a mythic past. His quote-unquote dreamland story, quite a few seem to actually be kind of in the past, like the cats of Ulthar and all of that. But... All of that changes in 1923 when he reads a book by one of the pioneering scientific Egyptologists, Margaret Murray of University College London, called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. It's a long story, uh, including involving an unsolved murder, which I went and looked at the original files from Scotland Yard, which was awesome. But um, she, in 1921, writes a book. That basically is the most complete version of what gets known as the old religion idea. The idea that the witch trials of the 16th and 17th century were not people just victimizing their neighbors and, you know, setting them on fire to take their land and whatnot, but was actually an ancient religion that had been demonized and turned into into Satanism. And generally historians and archaeologists do not, there's a lot of interesting archaeology of witchcraft and of magic, but they generally don't support that today. Um, but Lovecraft reads that in 1921, and he absolutely finds it to be cutting-edge anthropology, which quite a few people at the time did. After he reads this by this archaeologist, his stories start to become much more archaeological. They become much less dreamy and more set like in actual places with actual dates with universities rather than it's a traveler. Now it's like Professor Angel from you know Brown University, and it's in this place at this time. It starts to become much more solidified. And in his notes that become the call of Cthulhu, he literally calls the Cthulhu – what becomes the Cthulhu cult, the witch cult. And he went on and on about it in his letters to friends like Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, That is a major archaeological thing. If you think about the story The Call of Cthulhu, which creates the entire Cthulhu mythos. I mean there's a reason it's called that. There's a reason why it's a classic story. Never mind that Lovecraft is a giant frigging racist and that does unfortunately inform parts of that story but there's a reason this thing is famous and it's the notes of a dead anthropologist going through his dead archaeologist who's been killed by a cult spoilers, uh, uncle. <laughs> uh, and there's another dead archaeologist in there and it's all about archaeologists as an archaeological meeting, a good chunk of it. They find ancient ruins. I mean, this is what the whole thing is about. And that story is written from August 1925 to August 1926. And it is primarily set in early 1925 basically february to april 1925 i went back and looked at every new york times article about archaeologists written during lovecraft's adult life there is a giant spike in stories at that exact time about dead archaeologists and not just obituaries but like articles and also about sunken continents the sunken continents is because the new york times had which is another part of the story the new york times had partnered with a guy, uh, Byron Kuhn, de pro rock, who was all about like basically going around. It's kind of like the sort of history channel guy of the day or travel channel going around and, you know, sort of making stuff up in North Africa. But the dead archeologist part comes from the fact that the biggest archeology span story of the 20th century had just happened. King Tut to Ankh Amun is discovered his tomb in November, 1922. And it's pretty much front page news every day, 1923, 19 and into 1924. And it took about a year and then the media were like, huh, that sells. And so the narrative of how archaeology was covered in the public changed right at the moment that Lovecraft writes this story. There is never another time in his life when the media is most like this. And I think it's a huge influence on him. I think there's a couple of influences. But he, we know he clipped newspaper clippings and used them as inspiration. So this, this makes a lot of sense. There's, there's more to it than that. But uh,
1: that's a, a
2: key argument. Uh, that I do make uh, in the book uh, is that Cthulhu is in essence King Tut.
1: That's just so fascinating how like <laughs> how pop culture and actual archaeology can you know, become so intertwined to the place point where like you know now almost a hundred years later because it's yeah almost a hundred years now later it's it 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 feels like like it's just a myth now the entire thing. Yeah, everything yeah. from oh, yeah. King Tut through Cthulhu. Like, there's no way that I, without like a professional like you explaining it to me, there's no way that I could try to unravel that.
2: Well, and it's even hard for professionals. I've seen people make certain. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but make arguments about this sort of stuff where they're they're kind of backtracking. You know, they're sort of you know what we call retconning, and you know, in fandom and all that. We're like, oh well, that's like this. No that didn't happen yet. You know, like you've got to really get, you know, just as you, when you dig up pot sherds in the, in the ground, you got to be very detailed on your records. It's the same sort of thing, but this, that back and forth with fiction is really important for understanding what, what, um, uh, pe- academics call the cultic milieu. I have uh, some other terms for it. Uh, but, uh, basically all this kind of stuff, conspiracy theory, paranormal UFO, psychic, you know, all this, all that kind of gets together. um, the back and forth between fiction and these things, there's a friend of mine, uh, Blake Smith from the Monster Talk podcast, he uses the term scripteds about how so many quote unquote cryptids, mystery animals, get their start with influences from pop culture, from books, and especially, especially movies, that's, that's a big one. Here's one that vast majority of, I, I have yet to meet archaeologists that knew this, someone else did figure it out, I just not met that person, I've read their stuff a few years before I did, which annoyed me to no end. Um, <laughs> The original, the mummy, like the 1932 mummy, which is pretty much the same plot as the Brendan Fraser one, the 1999 one, and the Rachel uh, Rachel Weisz, who's frankly the star of that movie, um, that is based on an actual story that was uncovered on a papyrus in I think 1864, that dates to the third century BCE from Egypt at the oh, time wow. of Greek influence. It is the only Egyptian story about a mummy that resurrects in our world and like menaces somebody breaking into tombs as they're trying to steal an ancient book. Cause you don't even even remotely like it, and we we know that this is almost certainly the we actually know this is the basis for the screenwriter who was an amateur Egyptologist. He was a reporter that covered the Tut excavations. Well, here's a here's the kicker. That's a third century BCE piece of folklore. It's based on a guy who lived a thousand years before that who was real. His name was Kamwaset. He was the eldest son of Ramses the Great. He would have become king except that he died and his dad was still alive. He was the high priest of the land and he went around as part of his job because he was fascinated by this, collecting ancient magical inscriptions and restoring old pyramids and tombs, which I'm pretty sure if you're going in the ground and writing down inscriptions no one has seen and then restoring these sites – that makes him the world's first archaeologist, and he is the inspiration for the story of the mummy. And, like, ask colleagues of mine, they're like, they don't know this.
1: That it's fascinating. But,
2: yeah. yeah. No, that one blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute. This... And then I found that someone had figured this out in 2006, and I'm like, Of course
1: they did. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you if there was ever a case where, like, the myths of an ancient civilization, like, you know, what they have about themselves, if they're similar to the myths that, like, modernity has about ancient civilizations. And then I just looked at the clock and realized we have, like, 45 seconds before we go to break. And that was a pretty complicated question.
2: (laughs) Well, maybe we can pick that up to some degree after the break,
1: though. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I just, you know, when you, as you talk, talk, so this story, like, the mummy story, that's like 3,000 years old. Is that, am I understanding that right?
2: The story is 2,300 years old, but the guy is 3,500 years old. Gosh,
1: that is so – I find Egypt to be one of those places where like – it's hard for me to it does a good job of helping me understand my limited grasp of time on like the difference between like when the Sphinx was created until like the years, you know, zero essentially. Not that there's a year well, how zero, about, but
2: how about after the break we talk about Egypt and we relate it to the Roswell UFO crash?
1: Uh that yes. sounds out of this world. Yeah. Oh <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs>
0: We'll return right after the break with Dr. Jeb Card and Maddie Love. Please stay with us. I'm Hertsy Hertz. You're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950. Welcome back to AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Hertsy Hertz, here in studio with the wonderful Maddie Love and on Skype with Jeb Card. Dr. Jeb Card, sorry. This is our final segment with Maddie and Je- Dr. Jeb Card. If you're curious about Minnesota Atheists, you can check out the Minnesota Atheist website, which actually has been, should, the new website should be released.
1: Today, like if I go on here right now, you yeah. keep talking. Listen. I'll keep
0: talking. You yeah. double check. Um, but where you can browse articles, book reviews, peruse the calendar of upcoming events, sign up for the week, Atheist Weekly email, which will tell, give you links to upcoming events. And we have a ton of activities going around the Twin Cities and outlying suburbs. For example, today we have brunch at Cucumbers, which is my favorite place, like that is Cucumber Z. It's my favorite buffet place, honestly. Um, <laughs> Also, Sunday, April 14th, we are doing dinner with the board, which is a mouthwatering menu. We are going to be cooking up a... Storm of Cuban inspired food, pulled pork, tropical rice, black beans. Uh, I think we're doing uh, like a super awesome dessert. I'm so excited. And I'm so excited to cook for all of their guests. Please, if you are able, do come. It's a great chance to help support Minnesota atheists. And you get to have a confer- You can bend the ear of a board member like myself or bend sweater vest.
1: Is your ear really that bendable?
0: My ears are fairly flexible. Okay.
1: All right go on.
0: Oh yes, but if you enjoy the show and all that Minnesota Atheists has to offer, do please consider becoming a Minnesota Atheist while you're on the website. Membership has some great perks, especially like the whole the new website which has its own like amazing membership stuff um, but now we need to get back to our conversation with dr De- jeb card and maddie love
1: yes because dr card promised us right before the break that we were going to talk about egyptology stuff yes and we've already been touched on cthulhu yes and i am extremely interested in in hearing more about about egypt and its ties especially when with pop culture and the, this idea of how old egypt is
2: yes yeah so that's a that's a very old idea, and and like many things, you can blame the Greeks for it. Um, because you know Egypt is awesome, and, and I the more I have worked in you know teaching people archaeology and learning about it myself, the more I love it. It was, it was my thing has always been the Maya, like that's been my huge you know fascination since since college. But i uh, i Egypt is awesome uh, sauce, and uh, the Greeks thought so as well. You know the, the the Greeks. It became a you know at one point like everything awesome and old is from Egypt. Almost to the point when like something was a little ridiculous, it might be like oh it's from ancient Egypt. You know it's kind of like oh it's from history channel. But but no, they they saw Egypt as the source of ancient wisdom and knowledge, and then they took it over under Alexander and then the Ptolemies, and that did not end. And they adopted a lot of it. Uh, And during the Ptolemaic period, while they messed up a lot of understanding of ancient Egypt, it wasn't entirely, you know, they still understood a fair amount when the Romans take over, that gets worse. And then when the Romans collapse there, then basically a lot of what had come before really starts to recede into ideas of myth and legend. And one of the big parts of this is hieroglyphs, you know, so, so actual Egyptian hieroglyphs, you know, they, they mean sacred, you know, in Greek, it literally means sacred signs, sacred symbols. Um, but uh, you know they could be, but they were often used for what we would consider religion and magic, and you know help my my soul in the duot, and, and you know keep protect it, and you know have, make this make this little magical robot work for me in the afterlife because it's got writing on it. But of course hieroglyphs also record all sorts of things. It's it's re- recording human language, although they did infuse like a lot of uh, older societies did a lot, and not so old societies power in writing. But as time went and that got to be forgotten. A lot of Egyptian things got to be considered, well, this is the beginning. This is ancient. And so that writing must be mythic. It must be bigger than us. It must have more significance. So you had the idea that hieroglyphs were in essence kind of a, a pre-language like language kind of communication that was bigger and more spiritual, like tying into things like the Tower of Babel that was a language beforehand. You also have the idea that things with hieroglyphs on them and things like the pyramids were left over from before the flood because they're so old and they they contain secret magics brought to earth by fallen angels like the watchers the nephilim that becomes a medieval concept and that really is a large degree uh if you want to hear more about that go look at jason colavito's blog he blogs like five days a week massive amount of work and he really digs into that i I worked with him. We actually basically found, quote unquote, the real Necronomicon, not actually, but the thing that inspired it to some degree or one of the things that inspired it. Uh, It turns out it's an actual Arab medieval book.
0: As much as I would love to go into the Necronomicon, um, (laughs) we actually have another Facebook comment from Greg asking, the best and worst of the Egyptian slash mummy subgenre.
2: Ah, okay. Um, I mean, I like... The 1999, the, the Rachel Weiss Brendan Fraser one uh, or and his, uh, um, Arlu, uh, Voslov, Arlu, I forget the name of the guy who does The Mummy. I mean, he's actually part of the reason that movie works so well. That's a fun popcorn kind of D&D, fight skeletons, read evil books kind of movie.
0: I actually like the sequel uh, a little <laughs> better. What's that? I like the sequel better. The sequel,
2: I don't like it as much but it's uh, – there's just a lot of really junky CGI in it for me. But um, it's not bad. OK. The, OK. The China one doesn't do as no, well. I like no. what they tried to do, but it just didn't work. No. Um, the uh, 1932, the original Mummy, is also really good. Very different. The plot is basically the same, but it's far less action-y, far more moody. That's excellent. I have had to watch a bunch of the Mummy movies that came after the first 1932 Mummy, and they're just awful. Like My, my favorite is they make several that have similar – they're not the same characters from the original Karloff one. But they are they're they're the same characters from the sequels, and they're set over like forty years, and they age the actors, but they don't age anything else. So like all the material culture, all the stuff is basically like nineteen thirty-five to nineteen forty-five, but it's like fifty years. And you're like, wait, don't. I, i'm what is what is happening here
0: at least in good uh, sci-fi they at least try to to predict what kind of technology oftentimes they're wrong but yeah, then they at least give it no, a shot just, they,
2: these were cheap these were super cheap these were just like you know uh, and like one set in louisiana one set in or i think it is one set in massachusetts it's it's just weird so um what about, i saw the tom cruise one the 2017 one
0: oh, i haven't it's, seen that one
2: it's interesting it's not good it's interesting
0: you sound very minnesotan right there yeah (laughs) um what so what about abbott and costello meet the mummy
2: i i saw one of them as a kid um i've not visited into them i i had limits and i'm like i think i can safely leave this one out of the book
1: fair do you ever? This is a more serious question. Not that the other one wasn't a fantastic question, Greg. No. I'm sorry, but do you ever have students that become interested in archaeology because of their experience of pseudoscience when they were younger?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, I mean, I've been interested in this kind of stuff when I, from when I was a kid. Not so much the pseudo archaeology or alternative archaeology, but you know, other kinds of cultic milieu stuff like UFOs and whatnot. Very much got me interested in a lot of things, and then you know, I had to grapple with wait, well, wait, there's not. This is not Oh. And then I decide to study it. No, I absolutely do run into people. I run into professionals uh, who, who also uh, have that kind of in their background. I will say though – and this is a longer answer I don't think we have time for. I think that has changed uh, because of the nature of both our media and our society and the polarization therein. I think it was a lot easier to start there and end up with real kind of science more than it is now i think it's a lot easier to just stay there
0: and Uh, i gotta cut you off because that is actually our show for the week thank you for tuning in to atheist talk we'd love for you to join us again next sunday yes thank you dr jeb thank you maddie love have a great day